0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching people with Jesus. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Kurt Truxas. If you're new, my name is Kurt, I'm one of the pastors, and uh, we are excited to be continuing in our study of 1 Samuel today. In fact, we're sort of picking it up. Last time we were in 1 Samuel actually was in June. Then we did a summer series, so we're in 1 Samuel chapter 17 today, which will be a, a good study for us. Because it's been so long since we've been in this text, let me just briefly remind you where we left off in 1 Samuel 16. There was a changing of the guard that had begun in that chapter. Um, King Saul had been rejected as king. The Holy Spirit had left Saul. In fact, Saul was actually going a little mad. The Bible says that a uh, harmful spirit of the Lord uh, tormented Saul. And the other thing we saw is that God had sent Samuel the prophet to secretly anoint David to be the next king, not publicly anoint him, but secretly anoint him. And then David went back to tending sheep in the field. But you know how God has a way of working things out in in strange ways? It ended up that when Saul was going mad, they said, if you could just find a musician, maybe a musician could play for you and cheer you up and just put circumstances together, they ended up finding David, the one who was secretly anointed as king, and bringing David to play music for King Saul. Sort of ironic. The one who had been rejected as king could only find peace in his life when the one who has actually been anointed as king is ministering to him and playing for him. Sort of strange how those things work. God often works things out in strange ways in life, doesn't he? Well, but the end of chapter 16, David is not prominent. He's in the throne room, but he's sort of really much a behind-the-scenes guy, just a little guitar player, so to speak, in the back row. But when we get to 1 Samuel 17, where we find ourselves today, everything is about to change. David is going to go from a backseat player to a front seat player in the entire nation. It's the story of David and Goliath. And I have to tell you. There's a lot more to this story than your Sunday school teacher ever told you about. And if you will stick with me, because I have to warn you, this is the longest narrative in the entire book of 1 Samuel. If you stick with me, you will be richly paid off at the end when you finally understand what the story of David and Goliath is actually all about. It begins with the idea in 1 Samuel chapter 17 that the Israelites are fighting the Philistines. The Philistines are people that are in the promised land. And in actually previous generations, God had told the Israelites to drive the Philistines, Amorites, and other people that were in the promised land out of the promised land. But here we are, generations later, and the Philistines are still not completely driven out of the promised land. Like, God's people never actually got around to finishing the task and completing their job. And you you remember, why? Why couldn't they get rid of these Philistines? Or why did they Think they couldn't get rid of the Philistines. One reason is because the Philistines as a people were technologically advanced. They were the, one of the first civilizations to begin using bronze and iron, and they used those things to make chariots. They used those things to make military weapons. And with their military weapons and technological superiority for the ancient world, they controlled some of the major cities uh, in the ancient world at times. Cities by the names of Gezer, Megiddo, and Hazor, and you're like, I don't know what those cities are, nor do I care. Think of it this way. They controlled the New York City. They controlled the Chicago. They controlled the Los Angeles of the day because of their military strength. Now, the Philistines had iron weapons, as I told you, but the Israelites, they didn't. In fact, the Philistines were very careful not to let uh, the Israelites have Furnaces where they could smelt iron and make those things. And so the Israelites were fighting people with literally sticks and stones and nothing more. Because the Philistines are so technologically superior and also superior in numbers, and because the Israelites have sticks and stones, they're pretty much afraid of the Philistines. They want to do anything to avoid battle with the Philistines. But here's where an interesting part enters into it. Interestingly, when the Israelites do enter into battle with the Philistines or into other people that are in the promised land that God has commanded them to drive out, consistently, the Israelites are victorious. Even though on paper, they're completely outmatched. They're completely outgunned. God gives them victory in spite of the overwhelming odds. We saw that with the Ammonites and Nahash. Remember the guy who gouged everybody's eye out? God gave Saul victory and completely wiped out those people. First Samuel chapter 14, we saw that with Jonathan in the battle of Michmash, where Philistines and their chariots and their horses had invaded Israel, and they had... The number of soldiers, it said at that time, was more than the sand on the seashores. And everybody was hiding in caves. But one person, remember Jonathan? Jonathan said, no, well, I'm going to go in faith and I'm going to attack these guys. He climbed up the cliffs at micmash you guys remember that? And single-handedly started whacking away at them, set them into a panic which ended up retreating the entire Philistine army back to their coastal cities because of the faith of one man. See how God intervened and supernaturally worked in those battles to protect the Israelites and give them victory? Well, why that happened, what's happened at this point is the Philistines who are driven back to their coastal cities have not been content to stay in their coastal cities. Here we are just a few chapters later and they're back. They're back to fight with the Israelites, but this time they have a sort of secret weapon we're going to find out about. Now let me mention this. Um, this idea of the Israelites getting victory over the Philistines and other people in the promised land, and God supernaturally coming to their aid, this is something we find in Scripture. Early on, for instance, Exodus 33, 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here you and the people whom you've brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your offspring, I will give it. And notice this, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And there's other promises I could go to where God promised he would fight for his people in these battles. Now, even though those promises were given generations earlier, they are still in effect in the time and life of David. We need to know that when we come to 1 Samuel 17. Everybody else knows those promises were given by God, and they've proven true in these battles of history. But when it comes to their life at, that time, nobody wanted to put those promises of God to the tests and see if God would come to the rescue. Nobody except for one person who was willing to risk his life, because that one person believed God would prove true, and his name is David. Now, let's go ahead and dive into the text. Starting in your outlines here, the background. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. They were gathered at Succoth, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Succoth and Ezek in Ephesh-dammon. Now, What has gone on at this point is the Philistines have actually now invaded the land of Israel. They've come into Israel. They're only 13 miles away from Bethlehem at this point. Saul has gathered the army. And what he's trying to do is he's using his army to stop the invading Philistine army. We read this. And Saul and all the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. Go ahead and put that picture up. This is exactly, and I guess I'm in the picture there, but this is exactly the valley where uh, David and Goliath fought, and those are the two mountainsides where the invading army and Saul and his resisting army would have camped that we're reading about here in this text. A couple things to tell you about. In 1 Samuel, chapter, 1 Samuel chapter, 9, verse 2, we remember a little bit about Saul, the king. Remember, King Saul was a head taller than everyone else in Israel. King Saul was literally Israel's own giant. And it was because of his immense size, because of his immense stature, that's one of the reasons people wanted him to be their king. And so he could lead us into the battle. He's so big, he's so strong. He looks like our own little giant. But here we come across the Philistine's secret weapon, which is another giant. A giant that is much larger than Saul. A giant that makes Saul look like a complete dwarf. Let's meet Goliath. That's our next point. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. The first defining quality of him is his height. Now, these ancient measurements of six cubits and a span mean nothing to us. So let's convert them into modern measurements. He was nine foot six inches tall. He is incredibly huge. I want to be honest and let you know that if you do some reading on this text, you'll find that there's some Bible scholars out there that actually want to shorten Goliath, say he's too tall. And they like to say he's, uh, they, they like to point out that in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew text written or translated about a thousand years after the original Hebrew, it says that Goliath was four cubits and a span, which would make him about six foot nine inches tall, just a touch bit taller than me. Now, okay, that wasn't meant to be a joke, but it's good, it's worth a laugh. Well, I'm going to tell you why I do not think Goliath was a shorty. I'm going to tell you why I think he was a full nine foot six inches. Number one, that was the unattested biblical truth from the Hebrew text and stood for over a thousand years before somebody, when they were translating it into Greek, decided that that can't be right. We'll have to shorten it. Should have never done that. Stick with the biblical text. Leave it that way. Secondly... In a moment, we're going to see about Goliath's armor. His armor will weigh north of 200 pounds of metal that he'll be wearing. Now, Dana, you're a strong guy, but a six foot nine nine inch tall guy cannot run around in 200 pounds of steel armor and actually do any fighting. Jiu-jitsu will tell you that, right? Maybe a guy who's nine foot tall, six inches, could actually carry 200 pounds clowns of armor and still fight. And if the weight of his armor is untested, he has to be a monster nine foot tall guy to carry it. I think this may be the first time Saul, King Saul, met anybody who was actually taller than him. Remember up to this point, King Saul was the tallest person in the entire nation of Israel, but Goliath dwarfs him completely. Now, uh, just to put this in perspective, many people say, well, this is too tall. I told you about some biblical people who say this is too tall. And then one of the reasons they say that Goliath couldn't have been this tall is we have no historical record of anyone being nine foot six inch tall. They point out in the Guinness Book of World Record, the tallest man we have on record is a man named Robert Wadlow, and put a graphic of him up there, if you could. He's coming. There he is. Um, he comes in at, you know, eight foot and some odd inches tall. Uh, Goliath would have been over a foot taller than Robert Wadslow. Incidentally, he was this tall because of some kind of a defect in his pituitary gland that caused him to continue to grow. That's why he walked with a cane. That's why he died at a young age. But Goliath did not have a defect. He was actually this large. And some of you were going, nine foot six inches tall? I'm really struggling to believe that's actually true, since that's taller than the largest person we've ever seen in history. Well, here's what I'd like to say to you. There is good biblical reason to believe this is a legitimate height. I'll introduce you to this line of thinking, but we'll come back to this line of thinking at the end of the message. It's very crucial to understanding this text, but here's a little bit of information. Remember when the Israelites and the Exodus generation came to the promised land, and they sent 12 spies into the promised land? Remember that, Matt? And 10 of them came back, and were they real excited about it? No, we cannot do it because in the promised land are these people who are great and tall, and we cannot beat these huge people. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 9 verse 2 says these people were called the Anakim, the descendants of Anak, people great and tall. Numbers 13 tells us the size of the Anakim, this people in the, in the promised land literally terrified the Exodus generation to the point that nobody wanted to fight them or go into the promised land. Numbers 13 also tells us that these Anakim, these giant are de- giants are descendants of the Nephilim. Now, if you've studied your Bible, Nephilim, I've heard that before. Don't they show up in Genesis chapter six, verse four, where the sons of God came into the daughters of men and had children by them. And it's like, wait a minute, this is weird. Now, I do not know how the Nephilim somehow survived the flood. I do not know how the descendants of the Nephilim, known as the Anakim, show up in the promised land as mighty men, as literal giants. But if they're descendants of the Nephilim, they run the possibility that may or they are demonically possessed or demonically influenced and not just people of immense size. Now we know that when Joshua in the next generation goes into the promised land, he battles and kills a whole slew of these giant Anakim giants. But there are three places that when he's done conquering the promised land that we find these giant Anakim are left. We read this in Joshua 11, 22. And there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. Goliath came from where? Do you guys remember? Gath. Goliath is one of these remaining giant Anakim. These giants that frightened the people in the Exodus generation. These giants that it seems are descendants of the Nephilim that are possibly demonically possessed and influenced, which may be the reason they have such incredible size and incredible strength. Anybody afraid to fight him yet? You see why he might be impressive? Yeah. Let's move from his size to his armor. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. So here we have a little bit of a catalog of what he was armed with. Um, He has a bronze helmet. He has a coat of mail on him. It's on a coat of mail. Some of you guys like he goes in the post office. What does that mean? Now a coat of mail is a chain link uh, shirt. Go ahead and put that. That's what a coat of mail. This is like a, this is just off like a Google search. So it's not like a real one. Uh, but the coat of mail is this chain link thing so a sword or an arrow could not pierce him. If you convert the weight of the coat of mail that he wore to uh, modern English measurements, just that shirt was a hundred and twenty six pounds. In addition, um, he has a shield bearer that carries a shield because it's too big for him to carry, at least walking around all the time. He has bronze coverings on his thighs, bronze coverings on his shins, bronze coverings over his feet. Then it gets to the point of his spear. The point of his spear will get some weight on it. You convert those shekels into modern measurements. The point of the spear is 15 pounds. The guy's carrying like over 200 pounds of metal plating on him. He looks like a walking tank. Now remember at this time, the only people who have swords in all of Israel are Saul and Jonathan. Everybody else is fighting with what? Sticks and stones. Doesn't look like Goliath would be an easy takedown. The other thing we learn later on is he is a specialist in hand-to-hand combat. He's a gladiatorial champion. He's been fighting since he was been a youth. He's extremely experienced in his skills, and his skill is killing people. Not his first rodeo. We see this. He comes and he says, he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, (coughs) why have you come out to draw up for battle? And when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. You think Goliath is trying to intimidate anybody? It is working really well. Now Saul, remember, would have been the natural one to fight Goliath. Saul was Israel's giant, But Saul's not interested. Saul sees Goliath, who is much bigger than him, and he turns into a complete chicken. Even Jonathan, the hero of the battle of Michmash, the fearless man who climbed those cliffs, even he's afraid of Goliath. And here's the problem. Saul, Jonathan, and the entire Israelite army are just evaluating Goliath and the situation and the battle by the things they see with their eyes. A nine foot tall man, experienced warrior covered in iron. They're not evaluating things as they're seen from God's eyes. The God who had always promised to give them victories in the battles for the promised land, no matter what the odds were against them. And because they only could see with their eyes, not with the spiritual eyes of their heart and how God has always been faithful to his promises, they were afraid. Now we're introduced to the other opponent, David. And he is the exact opposite of Goliath. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons in the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. We're about ready to see that David was even not even old enough to serve in the army. He's the youngest in the house. According to Numbers chapter 1, verse 3 and verse 20, you had to be at least 20 years old to serve in the military. But at this time, David's not 20. This is a guess, but I think he's somewhere between the ages of 16 and 18 at this time. Now, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab the firstborn. Next to him was Abinadab. The third was Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So even though David can't serve in the military, apparently he's going back and forth between home and the front lines. Why is he doing that? Let's find out. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took a stand. Morning and evening, and Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain. And these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring them some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting their war cry." The first thing to realize was in those days, uh, the army did not, the king did not supply the army with the food what would happen is your family would supply the sons in the battle with the food. So Jesse had to supply food for his three sons that were in the military. And David's job was to be the food guy, to bring food from home, and not just food for Jesse's three oldest sons, but also food that would go to Saul and other commanders in the military. So he's a little bit like the guys at the fairway, you know, when you... You know, you go through the checkout line and there's these nice kids at the end who help you carry your food to the car. That's what David's doing. Getting the food to the front lines. But he gets there after Goliath has been taunting Israel for 40 days. Incidentally, 40 days is sort of significant. You'll see it show up a number of times in the scriptures. It often refers to, refers to a period of testing. Like Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted, to be tested, and after 40 days he had passed the test. Now what's been going on is God has been testing Saul. God has been testing the rest of the men in the army. Will anybody have enough faith to go into battle with Goliath? will anybody go forward and say, you know, God's promises of victory over the people in the promised land have always proven true in the past. They'll prove true in the present right now. And I'm gonna step forward in faith and fight Goliath. Will anybody do that? And after 40 days, the answer is no. Everybody's failed the test that is when God brings David into the mix. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage. And he ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And he talked with them. Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before and David heard him all the men of Israel when they saw the man fled from him and were much afraid and the men of Israel said have you seen this man who has come up surely he has come up to defy Israel and the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. Now, this is the first time David sees Saul's defiance or Goliath's defiance of the living God and how everybody is running from him. And also we learned that Saul Israel's giant, the chicken, even though he won't go into battle, he's willing to bribe somebody else to go into battle for him. I'll give you lots of money. I'll give you my daughter in marriage. I'll even make you and your entire household tax-free. Now that would motivate us, wouldn't it? Get rid of taxes for life. But even that doesn't move anybody into the battle. Hold on. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. David cannot believe what he's hearing he cannot believe that everybody is running from Goliath because in David's way of thinking, he is just an uncircumcised Philistine who is defying the army of the living God. David remembered God is very much alive. God is very much active today in our life and God had made a promise of victory against the people in the promised land. And God would keep that promise if somebody would just step forward and fight him. Now, (coughs) David said, I'll do it, I'll fight him. Now, as soon as he comes forward and says, I'll fight this guy, this young boy, who's not old enough to be in the army, you expect he's gonna get some resistance. People are not gonna be excited about his faith and about his courage. And the first resistance he gets is from his oldest brother. David was mocked by Eliab, his brother. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, "'Why have you come down? "'And with whom have you left "'those few sheep in the wilderness? "'I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, "'for you've come down just to see the battle.'" And David said, what have I done? I mean, was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke to him, spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Now, uh, this is just a little guess on my part. But I think Eliab was jealous of David. Remember, Eliab is the oldest in the house. If you go back earlier, we learned that Samuel came and you know, saw Eliab, saw the other brothers and passed over every single one of them, didn't anoint them as king, but chose to anoint the youngest one, David as king. And I think Eliab sort of doesn't like David because of that. And he takes every opportunity he can to belittle David and remind him you're just the kid in the house. And that's exactly what he's doing here. I think there's a little lesson for us here. Isn't it true that sometimes when you find a young man or a young woman who has great faith in God, great love for God, willing to risk their life, willing to risk their future for God in a big way, where do they often find their initial resistance? from older, more supposedly spiritually mature people in the church who turn and say to them, oh, no, no, no you need to calm down. You're, 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 you're too, getting a little too radical. You need to stop, you know, doing those things. And the discouragement sometimes comes from the older, mature people in the church who should be encouraging their faith, not discouraging their faith. That's exactly what Eliab was doing to David. Now, Adelaide wasn't just the only discourager. David was discouraged by Saul, his king. Now, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of you. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. You're but a youth. And this guy has been a man of war since his youth. All that Saul can see is evaluating things by the externals. Goliath, he's big, nine foot tall, covered in steel. He's scary. David, you're the guy that comes in and plays guitar and those sweet music in my throne room. You're just a kid. There's no way that you could ever battle him. And Saul completely forgets about God's promises, not living by faith. David looks at it a little differently, though. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. This uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go and the Lord be with you. Now, David, he did not see himself as unprepared for this fight. What David realized is all those years in obscurity, all those times of being a shepherd of the sheep out in in the fields were times where God was using those things to prepare him. David learned how to use a sling David learned how to use a staff. He learned how to go after lions and bears that were taking lambs from the flock. And he even learned how to engage in hand-to-hand combat with a lion and bear and kill it. You see how God was preparing him for all those years in the shepherd's field were preparations for this moment in the battlefield. Folks, you may not realize it. You may think that what you're doing in your life now is just a bunch of obscurity, nothing significant. Maybe it's a hard time you're going through in your life right now. But God is preparing you in the shepherd's fields for a special time when he plans to use you on the battlefields. God is always preparing us now for more significant ways he plans to use us in the future. David realized that, and he saw God's preparations in all of this. And he also realized that it wasn't his own skills that ultimately gave him victory over the lions and the bears. It was God who gave him the victory over the lions and the bears when they attacked him. And it was God who had given the victory over this Philistine. Then, David, then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. And then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Interesting here, prior to this, we've only known that Saul and Jonathan had a sword. Saul had more than a sword. Here we see Saul actually had all the same kind of armor as Goliath, that he had the armor to go into battle with Goliath, but he didn't want to. Now he strapped it all on David, and besides Saul's armor being much too big, David realized that he couldn't even move in this stuff. He strapped, took it off, and he realized the key to success in the battle it's not the fact I'm wearing somebody's armor. The key to success in the battle is the Lord. He would give the success no matter what he was wearing. Let's get in the battle. David fought Goliath. And he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. By the way, I think that's significant. He hid the stones at this point. That's important. Goliath doesn't see them. His sling was in his hand as he approached the Philistine. David has a stick and a sling, which is a leather string with a little pouch in the middle of it. Doesn't look that impressive or that scary. Now, what you need to know is a sling can actually become a very deadly weapon. Those who study this, when I looked it up, if you know what you're doing with a sling, when you whirl it, you can send a rock flying at over 150 miles an hour towards its target. And if you're good with it, you can be deadly accurate with it. Here's an example from scriptures itself, Judges 20:16. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed. Everyone could sling a stone at a hare and not miss. Now, this gives you the idea of the accuracy of things. Then the Philistine moved forward and came near to David and his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with just sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods, The Philistine said to David, come to me. I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Goliath is like, that's all you got? You're sending out a kid with a stick and a little leather pouch in his hand? Like, are you guys serious? Like, this is the best your God can do to fight with me? You guys are a joke. And David has his own little response. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistine this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that this and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with a sword and a spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands." David confident that God's going to be faithful, that God's going to keep his promise, and it has nothing to do with the armor you have in your hands. It all has to do with God keeping his promises to his people. Now, the battle goes quick. It's sort of like one of those UFC fights where you buy the tickets and it's a first-round knockout and you're completely disappointed. You paid that money for it. That's the way this goes. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. They're running towards each other. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone. Prior to this, I don't think Goliath has even seen the stone. Now there's no time to defend against the stone. And he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead, right between the eyes. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David." Well, I don't know how fast that stone was moving. It didn't just strike Goliath in the head. It broke through his skull and penetrated into his brain right between the eyes. God had prepared David for many years for that moment. Now, all that was left is just to polish the old guy off. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut his head off with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron. So the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharrim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent." So David is like, oh, all I have to do is just finish this guy off Excuse me a second here, flip over. Just have to finish this guy off, takes his sword out, uses it to hack off his head, picks his head up by his hair. and he's like, hey, guys, he looks dead to me. And the Philistines completely freak out, are not interested in keeping their end of the bargain and now surrendering to the Israelites. They run for their life and get chased. Now here's an interesting little note. I'll throw something in that's sort of fun. It says, David brings the head ultimately of Goliath to Jerusalem. We read that breeze right by it and don't think much of it. At this time, Jerusalem was not under Israelite control. Jerusalem at this time was still a Canaanite fortress. Now, in a previous generation, Joshua had commanded the uh, tribes of Judah and the tribes of Benjamin to take and conquer Jerusalem, but they hadn't done it because Jerusalem looked like it was too hard to conquer. The people felt they couldn't do it. David brings Goliath's head over and says, everybody thought Goliath was unbeatable. Here's his head. God gave us the victory. And I'm an 18 year old kid, clunk. By the way, guys, everybody thinks you're unconquerable. You're next. That's exactly what happens. Later on, when David finally becomes king, what does he do? He goes to Jerusalem and conquers it because God keeps his promises that he will enable his people to conquer the promised land. We have a little flashback here at the very end. And as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, like Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. The king said, inquire whose son this boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hands. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, my young man? And David said, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now what's going on there? I think essentially what's going on is Saul's like, there is something going on with this guy. Something unique about this guy. Who are his parents? That's as far as we get, but Saul realizes something is going on here. Now I promise you, if you'd stay with me to the end, You'd get a great lesson out of this. You've been very patient. So hang on for the lesson. What is the lesson of David and Goliath? Most people you look at will say, David and Goliath is about the underdog. If you're an underdog, you know, just have faith. God will enable you to beat the giants in your life. We don't know what those giants are, but God loves to help the underdogs. That's what they say. In fact, VeggieTales. You guys remember VeggieTales? Dave and the giant pickle. Let I me mean, raise my kids on VeggieTales. That's what they like to say. Yeah, you're singing it. Exactly. Yeah. This is what they say the lesson of David and Goliath is with God, all things are possible. My answer is wrong. That's not the lesson of David and Goliath. The lesson of David and Goliath actually goes a little bit like this God keeps his promises. In life, don't just consider the problems I see in front of me, live life in faith, believing God's words and God's promises will always prove true, no matter how impossible that seems. Here's where it gets interesting. You need to realize David beating Goliath the giant is not the first time this has happened in the promised land. You guys remember I talked to you about the Exodus generation, the 12 spies, 10 said we can't beat the giants, but two spies named Caleb and Joshua said we could beat the giants. And what we find is those two spies actually survive the Exodus generation. God keeps them alive. They go into the promised land and they are successful at beating the giants let me just give you the very end of numbers 13 it says and all the people that saw it that we saw in it are of great height and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from Nephilim. and we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers and so we seem to them that's everybody's discouraged nobody wants to go in and fight these anakim these huge guys caleb and joshua said we could actually fight them and as i said Uh, The Exodus generation dies in the wilderness, Moses dies, but Caleb and Joshua are kept alive to go in. And the first thing we see is Joshua, who takes Moses' place, destroys tons of these giants. Joshua 11. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, and from all the hill country of Judah, and from all the hill country of Israel. Joshua devoted them to destruction with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel, only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain Joshua, even though he was much smaller, was given victory over many of these giants. God was faithful to his promises in the past. What about Caleb, who also went into the promised land, the other spy? So now give me this hill country of which the Lord spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there, there's the giants again, with their great fortified cities. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall drive them out just as the Lord said. Maybe God will keep his promise. Then Joshua blessed him, and he gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephune, for an inheritance. Now the name of Hebron was formerly Kiriath Arba, Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. And then it continues, and Caleb drove out from there the three sons of Anak, Sheshai, Ammon, and Talmi, the descendants of Anak. Joshua wipes out a whole bunch of these giants. Caleb goes in, he wipes out additional ones, naming three giants. Now here's the part. Remember, Caleb and Joshua were the only two surviving in the Exodus generation. At the time they wiped out these giants, they were extremely old, right? When David wipes out Goliath, he is extremely young the exact opposite. It doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't matter how young you are, it doesn't matter how big you are, or what military equipment you do or don't have, God will keep his promise and give his people victory over these people in the promised land. And this didn't just hold true in the past with Caleb and Joshua, but it held true in the future. David was not the last one to defeat giants in the promised land. And after this, there arose war with the Philistines at Gezer." And this is after David is a king, by the way. Then Sibai, the, the Hushethite, struck down Sipai, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And the Philistines were subdued. And there was again war with the Philistines. And Elhanan, the son of Jer, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath, where there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number, and he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan the son of Shimei, that is David's brother, struck him down. These were descendants of the giants in Gath and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. Every single time, whether it's Caleb and Joshua, David or David's servants, they come against these giants, God gives them victory because God kept his promise to give them victory over their opponents in the promised land. Now, no matter how big, no matter how scary they are, The lesson of this chapter is that God keeps his promises. Now to us, God has not promised us victory over opponents in a promised land, but God has made many other promises that are valid and are valid and true to you and me today. The question is, what are you gonna do with them? Are you gonna be like the Exodus generation? Are you going to be like Saul in the army and know they're true, but not actually believe they'll be true and bet your life on them? Or are you going to be like Caleb, going to be like Joshua, going to be like David? Know the promises that God has made in his word are true and be willing to bet your life, risk your life on the fact that they will prove true because God is always faithful to keep his words. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, long text today, but thank you for showing us what is the true nature of this story of David and Goliath, that you were faithful to keep your word to David. You were faithful to keep your word to Caleb and Joshua. No matter what opponents they had in front of them, you would give them victory as they tried to conquer the promised land. And you're faithful and true to your words and promises to us today as well. May we be people who are willing to bet our life on the faithfulness of your promises. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. A complete archive of sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thank you for being with us. And may God continue to enrich your life.